God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm excited that you're listening to the show this morning. Justin's in the studio again today. Again. And we're also going to be interviewing Chuck Edwards again on the second half of his chapter in the new book just out, True Reason, concerning Dawkins's illusions. You might say, who's Dawkins? Well, he's probably the most famous atheist in the world. He writes, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. He's jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. And he's going to have to do better than just throw thesauruses at straw men. Last week, our guest described how Dawkins does a poor job of reasoning when it comes to giving you reasons why not to believe in Jesus Christ. That quote was a perfect example of what Chuck Edwards recognized as the fallacy of poisoning the well and the fallacy of a straw man argument. Both of those things. His whole book... The God Delusion is an illustration of those types of fallacies. We ended last week's interview with Chuck Edwards in the middle of his analysis of the faulty reasoning in his rebuttal against Christianity. So Chuck Edwards is going to pick up right there where he left off last week. He's also going to tell us why Dawkins is wrong and his reasons for why you should be an atheist. So he fails on both sides of the argument. He doesn't give good reasons not to be a Christian, and he doesn't do very much justice to the argument for being an atheist. So Chuck Edwards is a speaker, researcher, and special projects coordinator with Ratio Christi. He's also one of the contributing authors to the book that I just mentioned, True Reason, Confronting the Irrationality of the New Atheism. I would encourage you to go to Amazon and pick up that book, True Reason. I read it. I had the privilege of reading an advanced copy of it, and it's a wonderful book. I would encourage you to go buy that. Chuck wrote Chapter 4, Richard Dawkins's Illusions, which is why he's on the show talking about Richard Dawkins's Illusions. Chuck, welcome back to The God Solution. Thanks, Nate. Great to be here. Looking forward to what we have to get into today. Great. So last week we ended on some of the reasons why Dawkins' argument against Christianity falls apart. You went through a couple of those for us last week. And now this week we're starting with one of your last examples. Of course, there are many more of the problems in Dawkins's book, The God Delusion, some of the fallacies and some of the lack of logic in that book. So pick up where he left off. Okay, great. Well, basically, we'll look at another example, this time from Chapter 3 of The God Delusion, to see where Dawkins turns to the classic arguments for the existence of God. And when we talk about arguments for the existence of God, we're not talking about arguing and being combative. We're, we're talking about logical constructs that reach the conclusion that God must exist. And and is there a way to rationally think about, does God exist or not? And and through the ages, uh, Christian philosophers uh, like Thomas Aquinas and others have constructed these, these logical arguments to show that it's very reasonable to believe in God. 
uh, Aquinas was a 13th century uh, philosopher. And one of his arguments is the cosmological argument, and that just relies on the principle of cause and effect to establish a necessary being, which would be God, as who is the cause of the physical universe. But uh, Dawkins here is going to try to take that argument and, and take it apart and show that it's not a good argument. And so, therefore, if it's not a good argument, then we just have one less leg, leg to stand on as a, as a Christian for a reason for believing in God. So that's Dawkins' purpose here. So he dismisses this argument in this way, though. Instead of dealing with the, the argument itself and the, the different premises, the different statements that are made that lead up to the conclusion, he just makes an assertion about the argument itself. And he says this, and I quote, he says that this cosmological argument is, quote, entirely unwarranted assumption that God himself is immune to the regress. Now, what he means by that, that regress, is, is this. The cosmological argument states that if something uh, is an effect, it has to have a cause. Every effect has to have a cause. That's a sufficient cause to produce that effect. And if we look at the universe as an effect, as something that's not always been here, then it has to have a, a cause, a reason for being in existence. The universe has to have a reason for being. And so Dawkins says then that if you take it back one step and you say, well, God caused the universe, then the natural question would be, well, great. Okay, so what caused God if everything needs a cause? So that's what he's saying here. And, and if you say, well, God needs a cause, then whatever that cause was, what caused that? And what caused that? And you keep on going back and regressing back and back and back and back into an infinity. If everything needs a cause, where do you stop? So that's Dawkins' point. Well, the problem with making that point is that it's an absurd point to make. And just to show you, uh, I'll get into the details of why in just a minute, but, but just to to give you a, a couple of critiques that have been made to show you how uh, philosophers respond to that type of statement that Dawkins made. Uh, a noted Christian philosopher, uh, Alvin Plantiga, stated this about Dawkins' comment, and I quote. He said, you might say that some of Dawkins' forays into philosophy are at best sophomoric, but that would be unfair <laughs> to sophomores. <laughs> The fact is, great inflation aside, many of his arguments would receive a failing grade in a sophomore philosophy class. And then an atheist philosopher named Michael Roos put it this way, and I quote, Dawkins is a man truly out of his depth. Does he honestly think that no philosopher or theologian has ever thought of or worried about the infinite regress of the cosmological argument? The God delusion makes me embarrassed to be an atheist, end quote. <laughs> now, I don't quote these philosophers to, to just, you know, throw things at Dawkins as an ad hominem. I'm, I'm not calling Dawkins names. But I'm, I read those quotes to point out that, that Ruth has a right to feel embarrassed as an atheist because Dawkins not only misunderstands the cosmological argument, 
he fails to mention that there are actually three different forms of the cosmological argument. It's not just one form that, that Christians have embraced over the years. And Thomas Aquinas offered one form, but that was back in the, the 1200s. For Dawkins to, to deal with only Thomas Aquinas' form of the argument is... <laughs> I'm at a loss for words. I mean, what do you call it? I mean, it assumes that no Christian philosopher has ever had anything to say about that argument for 600 years. Well, that's ludicrous. Christian philosophers have dealt with that argument and refined it over the years. So instead of taking the latest incarnation of the argument and dealing with what current Christian philosophers actually say about it, Dawkins just dismisses the whole thing with like a wave of his hand. And this is just incredible that, that anyone in academia, much less a professor like Richard Dawkins, would treat information in this way. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm just speechless that this is in his book. He's not dealing with the argument at all or the current form of it. So, well, what is the, the current form of the argument? And what does it actually say that Dawkins is missing? And one of the strongest formations of this argument is called the Kalam cosmological argument for people that are taking notes. <laughs> That's K-A-L-A-M, Kalam cosmological argument. And it goes like this. There, there are just three parts to it. It's very simple. Number one, the first premise is whatever begins to exist has a cause. Number two, the universe began to exist. Number three, the, the conclusion, therefore, the universe has a cause. Now, this is a, a standard deductive argument that makes a lot of sense. If it's true that everything that begins to exist has a cause, and we know that's true just by, by thinking about it, that's just logic and common sense. Number two, if it's true that the universe began to exist, then the conclusion follows. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Now, how does that relate to God, you say? Well, if the universe has a cause, it's legitimate to ask, well, what could cause something like the universe? And all of a sudden, we're immediately led to the idea that, well, it must be something really big and powerful, bigger than the universe, more powerful than the universe, and it must be something like the God of the Bible. So it's... Uh, the cosmological argument is a foundation for the, uh, the assumption that well, God must therefore exist. So the point here is this. Dawkins says, he, again, he's, he's using a straw man argument. He's, he's misunderstanding or, or not really dealing with this form of the argument. Because when Dawkins says, well, if God calls the universe, what calls God? The point is that God never began to exist. God has always existed. And so Dawkins' question makes no sense whatever. God is the uncaused God. So the question of where did God come from is irrelevant to the entire discussion. So that's where, uh, again, when we make the claim that Dawkins is not using good reason, he's he doesn't demonstrate good reason when it comes to trying to rebut 
a philosophical argument. Now, one quick aside here. Uh, one might counter, why should we postulate God as having always existed? Isn't it, isn't it simpler to assume that the universe has always existed? Well, there we come back to uh, the second point of that premise, the universe began to exist. The reason we know that is there are actually two reasons. One is a, a philosophical reason, that it's impossible to, to cross an infinite span of time. And so if the universe is eternal, then we would never have reached the, the current day. And I don't have the time to develop that more fully, but that's the, that's the philosophical or logical res, uh, reason for that second premise that the universe began to exist. But another reason that's easy for people to understand is the scientific evidence for the Big Bang, along with things like the second law of thermodynamics that indicates that the universe actually had a beginning. So that's the, the scientific evidence that we have, have to date that validates that second premise. So therefore, if the universe had a beginning, that means it's not eternal. So, but yet something has to be eternal. And if the universe is not eternal, then the other, only other alternative is that something immaterial has to be eternal. And of course, that is our definition of God, an immaterial, eternal being. So that's the point of, uh, of this critique that Dawkins here is, is not using logic to refute a reason to believe in God. So he's not making this knockdown, uh, knockout punch uh, in this chapter two where he tries to discredit the reasons to believe in God. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR 91.9 and 93.9 FM in Durango and KDUR.org online. I was talking to a class of atheists. It was actually a class on atheism last year, and I described the Kalam cosmological argument for God, and the professor interrupted me and said, you can't just go saying that. And I said, yeah, I can just go saying that. And he goes, what about the Big Bang, Big Crunch model of the universe? Can't we have a cyclical model of the universe? And I explained to him, and I think this is found in the first or second chapter of Contending with Christianity's Critics, Current NASA WMAP measurements show that we're in a geometrically flat universe where that cyclical model wouldn't be possible. So, Chuck, what you're saying is exactly right. The cutting-edge science that we're observing today confirms that, yes, this universe had a beginning a finite time ago out of nothing. And that surely supports that second premise there. If any of our listeners are curious about the question that Dawkins brings up, who made God, I would invite you to check out Dr. Edgar Andrews's book, Who Made God? It's a wonderful book, and he does a great job answering that question. So you also said that Dawkins does not provide good reasons for being an atheist. So what are some examples of the poor reasoning in this area? Yeah, in this part of my chapter, I, I turn to show how Dawkins is trying to not only refute Christianity and, and tear that down, and I just demonstrated he did a poor job of doing that. But then he also has some chapters where he tries to show that it's more reasonable to be an atheist. So here he's going on the offensive in a positive way. He's saying that atheism makes sense, and here's why. And so uh, I suggest that he actually uh, misuses scientific reasoning when he tries to make his case, and he's not being logical. You don't, uh, again, when you use logic, you have to, to make some statements that, are true, and then based on those statements, you reach a conclusion uh, that would 
make your case, and I don't think uh, he makes his case. For example, in chapter 4 of The God Delusion, Dawkins is more in in his element here. I I don't want to be too harsh on him because he doesn't have a philosophical background. He's not a philosopher. And so we just saw how he's he's really out of his depth there. But in chapter 4, he turns to biology. Now, that is is his area of expertise. He's written a number of books in the area of biology and biological evolution. And so he even titles this chapter, Why There Almost Certainly Is No God, but at the same time, he's showing uh, why it makes more sense to be an atheist. And here, he's not only more in his element, but he says that this chapter contains the central argument of his book. And when he says that, he's saying that he wants to show how it makes sense to, to be an atheist, and here's why. He's fond of using an analogy of climbing a mountain to illustrate how evolution works. Now, regardless of what you think about evolution, uh, here's the thing. He says that Christians, for example, claim that you know evolution is not so, but they're looking at it the wrong way. If you, take, if you start at the bottom of a mountain, how do you get to the top? Through one step at a time. Small incremental steps will eventually get you to the top of the mountain. So how do you get something such as an eye or the wing of a bird or a bat? How do you get these incredibly complex organs and, and organisms themselves? Well, he says if you start with very simple things, then one step at a time you can kind of piece them together until they become more complex. And so he uses this climbing mount improbable. And he says that evolution illustrates how that happens, how that takes place. Well, what's interesting about the whole climbing the the evolutionary mountain thing is that the real question is not so much whether evolution is true, but there's a more central question that Dawkins doesn't address, and that is what's the origin of this first step at the bottom of the mountain? How do you get life to begin with, something that's living and and able to reproduce? And that's the, the key question. So the major flaw of Dawkins' mountain analogy is how does the first living cell arrive at the foot of the mountain to begin that ascent to more complex life? Well, now here we come to the crux of the issue. When Dawkins comes to the idea of first life, here's his solution, and I want you to tell me whether this is a a reasoned, logical argument based on science. Remember, Dawkins is a scientist, and science is based on what we can know and what we can see. So how does he account for the origin of life? Here's his explanation, and I quote, it is an initial stroke of luck, end quote. (laughs) Now, is is that a scientific statement? You know, if I would have put that on any test in my undergraduate chemistry program, I would have failed. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You say, well, it was just a lucky break. You know, in the lab, yeah, I'm not kidding. These are actual words. <laughs> you, everyone has to go out and buy the God delusion. Look on page 140, and that's exactly what Dawkins says. I'm not taking it out of context. In fact, that's not the only time he appeals to luck. He mentions other things that he calls one-off events in the history of life. For example, the origin of the eukaryotic cell, a complex cell with a membrane. Uh, consciousness, you know, how do you get consciousness from unconsciousness? How do you get an organized cell? How do you get something that's aware of itself, consciousness? 
plus other unspecified events. He says there are other things that he doesn't even mention. So there's more than two or three. I don't know how many. He doesn't tell us. But there are a handful of things. And in each case, Dawkins admits the need for, I'm using his phrases here, quote, a stroke of luck, sheer luck, much luck, and major infusions of luck. <laughs> so each of those points, he says, he, in other words, he has no idea how you can get a complex cell, how you can get consciousness and, and other things, much less the beginning of life. It was, they were just all lucky events. Boy, and we sure were lucky that they happened. Now, he's unfazed. Not only is this not scientific, scientific talk, it's just an assertion. He, he's, he's reduced to appealing to sheer luck, but he's unfazed by this inconsistency. And he tries to worm his way out of it by saying, well, however improbable the origin of life might be, we know it happened <laughs> without God's help on earth because why? Now, what's the scientific reason he gives for why we know life is able to generate itself on earth? And here's his answer. Do we have a drum roll in the back? Because we are here. <laughs> what? No way. We know, in other words, he's saying we know we're here because we're here. Because we're here. <laughs> Classic begging the question. <laughs> exactly. That's the point. Dawkins is so, this is just funny. You just have to laugh. Here's a scientist talking like this. So this is not a scientific reason at all. In fact, it's a worldview bias. The, the point here is that Dawkins is so locked in to his atheistic worldview, which, which assumes that nature is all there is. See, God is ruled out of the equation not because God has been demonstrated not to exist. God is assumed not to exist, and it's assumed that nature is all there is. Now, if all you have to work with is nature, then you still have to answer the big questions of life, such as, how did life get here? <laughs> how did organic life get here? Well, if all you have to work with is nature, then somehow, somewhere, sometime, that means that nature has the, must have the ability to organize itself into living things. But the point is, that's an assumption based on his naturalistic worldview, not a reasoned conclusion based on scientific observations. That pretty much sums it up. He makes another, I'll just summarize in Chapter 9, a, another major faux pas. He turns his attention to religious training, and he maintains that teaching religion to children is, is like child abuse. And then he gives some um, examples of children that have grown up in, re in religious homes, and uh, maybe things have happened to them that were abusive or, or they themselves have become abusive. And the problem here is that there's a wealth of, of scientific evidence and studies that have been done to show that religious training overwhelmingly produces positive results in children. But Dawkins does not deal with any of the literature and these studies that have been done over the years. He just makes these this blanket statement, and he uses anecdotal evidence to support his reason for that. 
and anecdotal evidence is very poor reasoning. Again, we have uh, major studies that have been done in recent years that illustrate that students or, or teenagers who are most religious do not have negative habits such as smoking and drinking and taking drugs. So they do not have these negative habits and, and early sexual promiscuity, for example. But on the other hand, they do demonstrate more positive examples than students who are less religious. And these positive outcomes are things like emotional well-being, uh, good relationships with adults, uh, moral reasoning, compassion, a sense of community. These findings are overwhelming. On page after page, uh, we see that teenagers who are closer to the devoted end of the scale as opposed to, to being non-religious uh, are healthier in their lives. But again, uh, Dawkins doesn't deal with any of that. So the reasons that he gives just do not hold up uh, when he claims that uh, religion is bad for people. So wrapping up the show, I know that some would say that you're just using a fallacy yourself, that this is just an ad hominem attack, that you're just fighting against or calling names against Dawkins. Is that true? No, and I think it should be clear from what we've said. I'm, I'm not calling him names. I'm not calling him a megalomaniac or anything. Uh, I'm just simply pointing out that he's making a claim as an atheist that he is good at reasoning. And I'm showing where his reasoning is not very good. Again, to use the basketball illustration, he's not a very good player. He dribbles off his foot. He misses shots when it comes to reason. So I'm re simply replaying the video of, of Dawkins' game to show that uh, where he's making these missteps. So don't kill the messenger. It's not about me. It's about whether Richard Dawkins is meeting his own standard of holding the, the intellectual high ground and being reasonable about his claims. I'm suggesting that he's not. Okay, as we close, what do you hope is going to be the impact of this book, True Reason? Well, two things, really. The first reason is um, I'm hoping that those who are not Christians, who either hear this broadcast or read the book, will find that the, the new atheists that they may have been reading or listening to are not really uh, living up to their own standards of, of reasonability, and that they'll realize that there's a rich history of Christian thought that faith is not blind, and uh, that Christianity is based on good and proper reasoning. We just spent two, two half-hour segments talking about some of those reasons. And then secondly, I'm, I'm hoping that Christians, especially students, will find the answers that they need when they run into some of these issues that come up that uh, skeptics have about Christianity. I want Christians to know that there are good responses to those those issues that are brought up, and I hope this will encourage them to seek out those questions that they may be having, too, about what it means to, to be a Christian and how to think well. Okay, last thing, Chuck, how can people find out more about you, website or something like that? Well, they can go to uh, ratiochristi.org, which is the website for the organization I work with, and there they'll find a wealth of information that go into a lot more details on these and, and many other areas of, that relate to questions about Christianity and, and the reasonableness of Christianity. I don't have a website myself, but uh, I'd be happy to interact if anyone uh, has a question and they leave that question on your website, 
and I'd be happy to respond to that. Excellent. Please buy True Reason. I would encourage you all that are listening to go to Amazon.com and pick up True Reason. Just out last week. It's a phenomenal book, and I hope you get a lot out of it. Well, as I always say, closing out the show, Jesus stands here today desiring to begin a relationship with you, and he says that you can begin a relationship with him through faith even today. If you realize that you're a sinner that needs a Savior, you can come to him saying, Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and that you rose again to give me life. I ask you to come into my life to be my Savior and Lord. I put my faith and my trust in you. The Bible says the second you put your faith in him, expressing that to him, you'll be adopted into his family, that he will give you a life of meaning and significance on this planet and an eternity with him in heaven. I'd also like to invite you to a local church this morning. Go to GodSolutionShow.com to see a list of local churches and the times and places that they meet. And please join us this Tuesday at 6 p.m. in Noble 125 for Connect. Come at 5.30 if you want to grab some pizzas. Get all of our previous shows, including this one and last week's show with Chuck Edwards, at GodSolutionShow.com. Remember, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great day.